Hey, PG. Hi, Tony. Sorry, can't stop. What's going on? Oh, there's been an accident. An accident? What kind of an accident? Oh, it's the dingometer. I left the handbrake off again. It's just put a nasty dent in Sir David Attenborough's car. Welcome to The Dingometer, where we invite people to talk about the things that make online learning awesome. Our guest in this episode is Tom Whitford. Tom is Head of Learning Design at the global learning design consultancy Curio, and he has a research background in the design of online social learning and communities. Now, it's always a privilege to talk with someone whose views of online learning design are informed by experiences with multiple clients, and Tom's work at Curio certainly enables him to identify opportunities and challenges for online learning in a range of contexts and disciplines. But sadly, what you can't see from this podcast is the particularly fantastic shirt that Tom was wearing when we spoke with him. Now, if you design any kind of online learning experience, there'll be more than a few ding moments for you in this episode. And the dingometer was whirring and jiggling all the way through the conversation, particularly when Tom talked about the absolute necessity for online learning spaces to be designed for visible participation. And this is so that, it, that they enable enthusiasm and this idea of accountability. He also talked about the need to think purposefully about every aspect of the online learning environment exactly in the same way as you would do in a physical teaching space or a classroom. Another key point was the value of thinking about the visible contract between the teacher and the learner in order to inform the expectations of the learning design and being clear about what each party expects in terms of participation. And then also the importance of pushing back against some of the established conceptions of curriculum design and delivery. Now these might be things like specified number of contact hours or perhaps the need to use a specific learning management system And by pushing against these, we're more able to tailor the learning experience more closely to the specific needs of of the specific group of students that we're working with. So look out for those and many more, and let's get on with the podcast. So welcome to the Dingometer, Tom Whitford. Um, It's an absolute pleasure to have you with us. And uh, so you're the learning experience practice lead for Curio. And Curio is a global education consulting company who, and I quote, design and build and deliver exceptional learning experiences and products. So lots to dig into here. Um, we're obviously super excited to have this opportunity to talk to you about your views on online learning, but but maybe before we do that, could you start by perhaps telling us a bit more about the work that you're doing at Curio and what, what designing and building exceptional learning experiences involves? That's the secret. Terrific. Well, thanks for having me, you know, Tony and Phil. It's a pleasure. pleasure to be here. And, you know, if you can handle my sort of mongrel accent for the next sort of hour or so it's i'm based like i said based in australia but working out of curio london office um it's a pretty amorphous job title really learning experience practice lead and we we like to use the term learning experience um sort of in in lieu of learning design in in most cases which or instructional design if you're a north american um it's 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 quite simply it's it's all about the implementation and strategy behind you know, not only getting materials online in a, in a humane way, but thinking about, you know, user experience as well. But also that weird nexus, which we're actually seeing coming to the fold in, in interesting ways around technology and pedagogy. So what is, what is the, the learning and teaching um, thinking and expertise behind uh, the, the platforms that we're using, the way in which these platforms might corrupt or challenge, you know, ways in which students and learners might comprehend and and understand information, 
but we might also think how they navigate through information in a self-directed way. So we sort of come in to hold the hand of a whole host of our clients. They could be universities, they could be corporate clients, learning and training organizations. But really the, the challenge has been for the past year is how to get online quickly. Um, we would like to add a how to get online well in a sort of high quality, best practice kind of mindset. But Curio is founded on the principles of expertise and science. So everything we do, we like to say we have data and empirical evidence behind it. I come from a research background in online teaching and learning. So I look at social pedagogies in particular and how we build community online. So that's my own sort of subject matter expertise. I also teach on faculty in a business school and I teach things like strategy and commercialization. So I have a few different actual hats that I wear and you can't see the hats that I'm wearing now, but um, it depends on, on which day of the week you speak to me, but I suppose it's, it's mostly as a learning and teaching specialist. I've always called myself tongue-in-cheek as an academic. You know, I, I kind of fell into this because my professional life prior to being a researcher and also doing it for my sins, a, a PhD in education as well, but um, online education. But prior to this, I was a, a marketing practitioner, uh, a digital marketing practitioner, as it were, um, and ended up teaching, you know, marketing strategy and whatnot. I always found it interesting. I thought, well, what is it about marketing, the marketing function? Uh, let's ignore sales for now. But what is it about comms and marketing, advertising and branding? There's a nice, interesting nexus with education because it's all around presentation of information. If you look at advertising, some would say the dark arts, it's about manipulation, um, but it's also about carrying over an audience into your worldview. It's about persuasion. It's about education and information. You go over to an education prof and they would say, well, the essence of education is all of those similar things where you've got to think about your message. You've got to think about your audience. You've got to think about the way in which you're packaging up and making information modular. So there's almost a learning design type flavor to the way in which we talk about the function of marketing, advertising and education. So that's how I kind of, I, it was the Trojan horse by which I got into, you know, education research is through that marketing, advertising focus, theoretical focus anyway. Well, that makes a lot of and sense. And anyway, so here, here I landed. Yeah. Yeah. It's, like you said, this core aspects of communication, what good communication looks like, how do you create social learning experiences that people connect with? So I'm curious as to what, what does exceptional look like for you when you're looking at learning experiences? What, what is exceptional? I get this question so often in the sense that a lot of um, practitioners and academics would always love to see sort of like a North Star. You know, we would love to see what you consider great design. And what's interesting is that that example or exemplar that I showcase to people looks different depending on who they are. So I know that sounds like a cop-out answer. So for example, if um, uh, the academic or the teacher or even the group of learners is perhaps not overly technologically savvy, it might look very, very much a, or a pedagogy or a design that's focused on learning together in real time, synchronous type delivery, where there's actually less emphasis on structured materials. So in terms of showcasing that to someone, you look at it and you go, oh, it's bare bones, you know, it's, it's almost quote unquote empty um, or it's thin. On the other hand, if you've got uh, a highly complex course or if you've got an idea or a syllabus uh, with different machinations, you actually might see something that's interconnected, that's woven, there's an emphasis on reflection, there's an emphasis on discussion. You're getting students to interpret or learners to interpret information. You might also have the academic in there themselves interpreting information in real time. 
it looks very elaborate. So the design becomes quite sophisticated. And I talk about this word design as the manifest of you know, the, the teaching um, syllabus or curricula as well, but I'm also talking about how it exists in an online space. So it also might be dependent on the VLE or the learning environment that you're in as well. So how I showcase what looks like good, I think is also dependent on a few interesting things like whether or not the platform or the technology is simple and easy to use versus one that actually maybe is, is not required. You know, we could have, I was talking with a math professor the other day who was using their webcam to do all of their teaching synchronously and getting students to write notation on pen and paper next to them as he was explaining concepts and holding that up to the webcam. And I said, well, that's a really sort of analog way of teaching online. And he said, this is the best way for me to replicate what it is I do and what I've been doing for 40 years. And I actually couldn't say to him, well, that's wrong because I actually think it worked for him. It worked for his students. It worked for his content. It worked for the learning outcomes of his course. So again, it looks different, I think, depending on the, the, the certain circumstances that are there. What, what, what do the car crashes look like? And obviously those car crashes were there before online learning, but what's the engine for, for worst practice, do you think, in terms of people's response to technology and education? Uh, I think this is almost the, the excellent inverse because it points to... Um, you know, anything that is inert, static, and dead is a space that is devoid of passion and motivation. So like we said before, the, uh, the mass professor who is saying, well, I instruct and lecture and students write beside, that's a format that's comfortable to, to him, to teaching and for the learners to learn in. But it also means that there's enthusiasm. It means there's activity. It means hopefully there's motivation. And let's, the, the big word, which we forget, I think, with learning design, is accountability. It means that people are likely to attend and participate and feel comfortable when doing so. And also, let's not forget, comfortable in sharing their ideas with others as well, which is that the social community aspect. If you have a space that is inert, you've created you know, a, a learning environment which isn't being updated frequently, there's not, uh, there's not a sense of dynamic interaction between anyone, not just from teacher to student, but from student to student, or there's just content that hangs in a way that is incoherent, or it's seen as a, a bit of a file repository, if you will. And, and often that, if you, if you were to look at learning environments of maybe 18 months ago, that's kind of how they were used. Let's just upload a PDF and, and that's where students go to access that. Now that, that to me is a dead space. And I would say that design is not effective, but there could be ways in which your synchronous class actually makes it come to life. So it really is just a way of transmitting or passing on files to students. And that's fine as well. It depends obviously what happens in the synchronous or live session. So I'm, I'm fully on board with the argument that it's, it's, it's sort of the horses for courses type approach, but I will say that an ineffective space is one where learning is not happening visibly that we cannot see any evidence of students working together, academics working with students or, or teachers working with learners. It's just a space that doesn't have any accountability for people wanting to be there. Uh, Can you talk a little bit more about that concept of accountability? Because I, that, that, I recognise that idea. I also recognise from my own experience how that term for some, some academics uh, who, are, who already feel uh, like they're too accountable, that they already feel that they're accountable for sort of marketing, recruitment, student satisfaction, the whole thing. Um, but when you'd used it then, the idea that there is a responsibility to, to be there, to make it work uh, and to reflect if it's not working. Um, 
to me just seems very sort of obvious but but yeah that word i think for some people would would freak them out so i'd like to hear you talk a bit more about uh the way you see that that idea yes yeah, so um when i talk about accountability i'm talking about almost that invisible contract that exists between uh, an expert and a novice um or a master and an amateur or a teacher and a learner or or even if we can talk in non-person you know terms as well we can talk about content that's seen as heralded or exceptional and and a late person's understanding of or even something like you know um, an everyday assumption piece now all of these things sort of permit um two two people or two worldviews or two perspectives coming into a space and saying, I'm here because I want to learn, I want to share, I want to be challenged. If we talk about or ignore the commerce aspect that someone is paying for this service to be delivered, which I'm happy to, you know, put aside for now, let's just even talk about, well, is there even an enthusiasm to click on a page, to open it, to scroll? We are talking, this is a challenge of attention management uh, cognitive engagement, as much as we're talking about the social and effective as well. But do I want to be here? Is my brain stimulated? Am I sparking? Is this something that's going to win my attention over four hours of Netflix at night after the kids are in bed? And, you know, I've, I've finished my nine to five job on Zoom. Am I going to likely to jump back on Zoom for another three hours and sit and listen to a lecture? So we need to think about that. And it's a, it's a question I think of, of that accountability, the invisible contract between uh, the learner and the commitment they have made to learn and whether or not that exists in a space. And we can remind them of that. And I would encourage every educator out there, the first thing you do is you talk about the expectations for your classroom and you say, this is what I'm here to do. This is my expectations of you. But also you tell me what you want from me as the expert as well. Do you want me to respond to your emails within you know, two days maximum? Do you want me to be responsive enough with feedback and turn your assignments around in five days? Do you want a space that's heavy on content or do you want a space that's heavy on synchronous live sessions where you can talk to one another? Negotiate that with your students. If we talk about advertising and marketing theory, this is, you know, customer orientation. This is thinking about our user needs first. And all of that, I think, improves that accountability. Is there a danger with that, Tom, that, that if you open that negotiation with your students that they just say, I want everything because I'm just sort of aware that, it's, you know, some of the research around um, moving to online and offering online and blended students often say, well, I want both. I want the on-campus experience and I want all my lectures recorded and I want uh, good sessions, but I want lots of content. And is there a danger that you just kind of open yourself up to uh, like you're at the behest of all your students? Yes, there is a short answer. We hear it a lot sort of in the faculty corridors. The word I hear a lot is spoon feeding. It's this idea of we're giving the students too much choice. We're, we're, we're providing them with uh, too, much, too many alternatives. For, for example, a student who's doing a standard degree or a program might actually be offered 40 different subjects they can choose from and they choose, you know, 16 in a configuration, what have you. It's almost, you know, the same anxiety we would get if we go to Subway and there's like 16 different types of olive we can put on our sandwich you know it's it's the tyranny of choice students will feel anxious and, and unmoored in this environment and I think we do have responsibility as educators and experts to say well this is the perfect path for you this is a path we have set up that is deliberate 
But I suppose along the way, making sure we're checking in and saying what aspects of this need to be tweaked and or adjusted. And I think given the online pivot that we're in right now, there's a lot of our assumptions that we have that we need to challenge around what makes for an appropriate load to request of a student. So why, for example, why is five hours a week considered the norm? Why is three hours a week considered the norm? What's an appropriate mix of synchronous and asynchronous? Is our VLE or online learning environment the most appropriate place to have dynamic discussion? Why not use Zoom or a social media channel, for example? Is it set up? Can it handle the type of learning we're trying to promote? Is video-based assessment a more appropriate approach to, you know, delivering or getting to the same learning outcome as opposed to a 4,000 word written assignment? In the past, we've always gone with those or we've been tempted to go towards those old traditions. So I think now is probably the moment where we revisit and start to question. That's not saying we're giving up the sense of, well, we're the expert, we are in control. But I do think it's time to start listening to, to our audience, to our students a little bit more and start sort of, it's the microdosing, the adjustments that we need to make sure that we're, we're getting closer and closer to an ideal for everyone because it means your students will be present and that accountability will exist. And I'm, I suppose I'm curious as to uh, when you're approaching a new uh, design project, what are some of the, the underlying principles and practices that guide your approach? What, what, you know, what guides you? What's your compass? What's your map when you're, when you're trying to devise something from scratch? From scratch is always the hardest part because um, there is a temptation to look to other curriculums and syllabi and, and other designs and say, oh, this is sort of what's working well for other people in my field. You know, we, we as experts and academics know that there are people out there that we look up to and say, well, they must be doing a great job with, with their teaching and their, their instruction. What I find fascinating is that we're probably now in an era where if I were to be bold and brash, I'd say that let's assume Wikipedia and Google know more than we do. We are not the fonts of wisdom that we once were or that we currently think we are. <laughs> and I think it's okay to say that. And I think it should be an acceptable thing to say, well, you know, in any, I've done a lot of peer review and back in the old days where we sat in a lecture theatre, I would sit up the back of a room and actually look at students watching a four minute video on cell biology on YouTube while the lecturer spends 45 minutes talking about the same concept. So I see that students have their own shortcuts to process and find out this information. So I do think we're now in an era where we say maybe we are custodians of learning. We are the guide on the side. We are the facilitators. We're also curators of content. We go out there and source and pick out what makes sense for us in terms of conveying a broad sense and a very good sense of the topics. But also, let's think about whether or not these materials are rich and engaging. Let's so switch on the pedagogy part and say, well, actually, now that I've found all the different things that make for good and true in the world in terms of what it is I want to teach, let's go through and think about from a learning and teaching perspective. Are these high-quality materials, are they recent? Are they, uh, do they lead to some degree of activity or can I design an activity around them? Uh, are they something that students will engage with naturally? Are they grounded in the real world? Are they likely to relate to something like an employability skill or a tangible takeaway that students might talk about in a job interview, for example? So this is some simple tests that we can have when we're building a course from scratch and a set of materials from scratch to say, well, is this curriculum syllabus I'm building likely to be relevant, memorable, engaging, fresh, 
and likely to suit the platform and the technology as well. You were talking about the uh, the role of the tutor sort of being curatorial. Actually, maybe the word is also post-production as, as it would relate to the production of, of film because, you know, you can go onto set, can't you? And you can film multiple shots and you can have uh, so much coverage and you can get all of this stuff together. And then in the editing room, it is possible to dial up the story, dial things down, reshape the ending, create ambiguity, change the feeling of something. And it sort of feels like that the one thing we have is an embarrassment of coverage in terms of knowledge, because as you say, Google, Wikipedia, um, there are multiple videos put together to deliver the same nugget of information. And I guess this idea that we're actually, when you're in terms of designing a learning experience, um, from my background in kind of um, film and telling stories, the editing room is always overlooked in, in a way because it's like it's as if it happened on set but actually the editing room is where the story coalesces i think it's such a that's such a profound idea because you're even talking about sort of almost like an ontological framing of knowledge as something that is either fixed or moving or what is the nature of what it is we're trying to design and um educational prof out of out of australia peter goodyear has this concept or problem space of design that focuses on teaching as design. It's something that is iterative. So each time we teach, we tweak and adjust and change, which requires, as Phil, you just said, is, is an edit um, or an editing. And it's not a linear journey. It's, it's not like we're, we're producing something that is, um, you know, quite hard-coded and locked down. So I, I'm sort of, I have this really interesting approach to the word production because you know, we are talking now very much in terms that are quite, you know, this is what content is and content is knowledge, right? And, and we, we all know that content is not your, your curriculum is not your content in, in that way. But I also know that there is, this is the, the tightrope that we're now walking, is that as curators of content of our materials, especially online, is that we're kind of also thinking about things like future proofing. We're thinking about whether or not the set of materials that we're, we're grabbing from is likely to be required in a year's time. Is it likely to withstand, look at what's happening in the economy and society with COVID. Is it likely to sustain in the current moment? Um, is it likely that it requires updating next year? I've got a really busy research pipeline and teaching schedule next year. Do I have time to update my course? You know, in the past, perhaps I was updating my course without realizing, but I was doing it in situ in the lecture theater in the round live. So it wasn't so much that the materials that I was hard coding needed to be updated. It was actually the, the synchronous or live delivery where I was making that bespoke or contemporary. So I sort of look at this and I also think from a learning designer perspective or instructional de design perspective, I know that most videos, instructional videos are probably around the 12 to 18% viewer percentage of your cohort that actually view these videos. So I think, well, there's, there's, an, there's an attention management issue as well around the videos that we produce and we also know they absorb a lot of the budget so i'm now speaking about video content in particular as something that is both time consuming something that's not overly effective as a medium we know students often prefer to watch these at higher speed rates so there could be questions around you know the cognitive load as well of a video and i kind of think too if it does lend itself to an anxiety for the teacher or academic too. We know that when we're tasked with putting something, say we're writing a book or we're putting together a video, we want it to be perfect. We want it to be a complete, well-edited piece of thing that makes sense 
that does add an anxiety and I think maybe a tension within the artifact itself, whether or not that becomes something that is almost too complete and fixed that it doesn't allow us to edit it later on perhaps or for the next design. What do you think some of the implications of this are for learning management systems, Tom? Because, you know, given your view and, uh, you know, like at a global level and your work with you know, multiple universities, th- this idea of, of the learning management system, and there, and there are plenty, but there are some big ones, um, is, has this kind of wholesale move to online learning uh, kind of just, is it justifying investment in LMSs or is it really causing people to think, this doesn't work anymore or like, what, what are your views on the kind of the near future of the LMS? And, and if you're kind of advising people on like procuring LMSs or what, what they should be looking for from an LMS, what, what does that look like? I think it's a great question. Tony, if you caught me in the street, my advice would be they're all rubbish and um, expensive and we're beholden to some of their idiosyncrasies, um, which do not, which challenge learning, effective learning, I would say because I come from a philosophy where learning might actually happen outside of these spaces that we can't see. And in most cases, if you've asked your students to do any group work, they're self-organizing in a Facebook channel, a WeChat group. They've figured it out. They're in a Google Doc well ahead of us. So I kind of think about, well, it, it makes your VLE or your LMS redundant in that sense. It's not, it is not giving you the provision that you need. It is a space that perhaps maybe was formed and has some hangover to the web 1.0, maybe if you're lucky 2.0 era, where it does become that sort of information repository. Um, It's got your standard left-hand side or right-hand side menu bar. It's not dynamic. It doesn't change to the user. It doesn't have a highly integrated sense of uh, community or it doesn't have a community function at all. Um, It's clunky to implement and upload information. And it might also just be a Frankenstein VLE anyway, where you've just plugged in as many different tools and APIs and LTIs as possible, and you've got this mongrel that you're left with. And the problem with having a mongrel is that you've got some academics who are really enthusiastic and turn on all the tools and completely overwhelm the students. And you've got some academics who say, well, uh, there are far too many tools for me to get my head around. And this is, it just becomes a graveyard of these like, you know, leftover Mentimeter polls or or what have you. So there's the risk, I think, with focusing too much on the VLE or the LMS and not focusing on what exactly you want students to do and feeling okay with your students going elsewhere. And also you, you might yourself in your organization be using MS Teams or we're on Zoom. Um, It might be that that is in and of itself a platform that's okay, that's conducive to the, the learning and the approach you want to take and the pedagogy that is yours. If you're focused on a live or synchronous session, why not have your entire, you know, all your materials, all your chat, all your live meetings in MS Teams? So this is where we're starting to see now because of the remote working environment, that the allowances and affordances of us all working remotely, we're starting to see that, hey, maybe these rich interactions can exist you know, elsewhere, uh, and those elsewhere places are not our VLE, or are starting to see how compromised our VLE actually is. Students aren't engaging and discussing and, and talking with one another and yourself in your VLE, and there's no sense of rich social discussion. Well, you know, let's not blame the students. I mean, and our learners, let's almost assume too, as digital natives or millennials, 
they're the most comfortable with oversharing online. They're the most comfortable with expressing tricky, controversial conspiracy theory type opinions on the internet, right? This is the generation for, uh, you know, Web 3.0 and 4.0 futures. This is them in the discursive web making sense of the world in a way that even we don't understand. And it could be generational, right? They are using memes and deep fakes that we can't even comprehend. And they're doing it all in Facebook, Twitter, wherever they're on and social media, that's fine. TikTok, Vine, RIP, and, and all the other ones that are out there. So I don't think we should blame the students because they have that inbuilt nature and to, to want to you know, engage with one and, and connect online and create networks and to talk about the deepest, darkest feelings, to break up with someone, to, to meet someone. All of these things happen. It's just that they're not happening in our learning environments. So is it a failure of the technology? Is it a failure of how we're using the technology? And it could be both of those things. But in most cases, you know, think about what can be done in, in, a, in a Zoom session or MS Teams session. If you're creative enough, you can elicit some of these responses. And it might mean using the whiteboard in an interesting way, getting students to take a tour of, of their house, their bedroom, bringing artifacts to the environment. So just going beyond, I think, what we would, and, and being comfortable with some of these off-task or unstructured spaces. We haven't had to do this as educators before. So we're unfamiliar to these tools and tricks ourselves. And so given this kind of this massive move to much more online teaching, are there some quick wins, do you think, for particularly for uh, higher education institutions um, that can be achieved through better online learning design? What, what are some of those kind of low-hanging fruit, the things that you could say, if you do this, 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 your students are going to get more of a sense of value for money, you're going to get a better experience. What, what are some of those, those quick wins, do you think? Or are there any? <laughs> Oh, there's, there's actually quite a lot, and the good news is they exist already, so chances are they're net negative in terms of investment cost. You have got currently faculty and schools that are teaching online, building materials themselves. Um, you've got six months or seven months of runway of material production, of content being put online already. So you're building this arsenal of online materials. You've, you're upskilling your faculty really quickly. There's a huge you know, undercurrent or tremor happening where, where academics are quickly getting up to speed with uh, virtual and online delivery. This is an amazing transformation. I mean, they talk about COVID as a great accelerator of everything. Well, this is, has accelerated again. Um, shed a tear for anyone looking at online teaching and learning research uh, in the past 18 months because you've had to rewrite significant parts of your uh, thesis and or um, publication. So it's the game has changed. And I think there's an opportunity here in realizing how much is being done already, how much of that can be upcycled. We're not recycling. We're thinking about how it can be improved and reimagined for the coming semester. I would quickly do an internal audit of which academics have taken this challenge on headfirst and over committed and use them as the champions from within the schools and from an inside-out approach. Say, look, this is Professor So-and-So's approach. She's done an amazing job at establishing community. Here are the tools she's used. And this is a great recipe card for us because it's in some ways a bespoke design that could be relevant to that school or to that faculty, especially if you've got some interesting quirks with your cohort or your technology. So there's a ready-made example somewhere there for you as your North Star. The, the, the other quick win, I think, and it's something that we, I haven't seen 
anyone do successfully, despite them all being turned on, is look very closely and get very good at listening. You have a learning analytics function embedded in most of your VLE systems. This is in Moodle. This is in Canvas. This is in Blackboard. Get your head around what they're doing. Set them up so you know how many students are looking at certain pages, if your videos are being viewed, and make sure there's some training or a small amount of support provided to academics to say it's very easy just to click this button and get a report of engagement, interaction with materials, but even a simple attendance or participation sheet for your online classes. And once that data is disseminated, don't put rules around how, you know, what you should be doing with that data. That's the, that's the last thing you want to do. You almost want to unshackle your teaching staff, your professional staff and what they do with this information because it can reveal new things about your cohort that you didn't know. Um, you might assume that your students have all come to the UK to study when really some of them are studying with IP addresses in foreign places. Um, you might also reveal that only 10% of your videos that you've spent all of your summer making are being watched. You might also see that students only tend to interact with students of the same gender. You might also see, so there are patterns that emerge from this. And it also means an academic could respond to that if they know how to interpret that as well. What does the next 12 to 18 months look like for online learning? What are we going to see more of and less of, do you think? Very good question, Tony, because I um, sometimes shudder when I hear someone describe themselves as a futurist. because <laughs> I still am not fully able to comprehend what that means. Um, and I'm yet to see any functioning crystal ball out there that, that is accurate. However, it's a rocky road for those that consider this as an acute adjustment and not a long-term opportunity. And I say that because knee-jerk reactions to the current crisis with even more Band-Aid type responses will get you nowhere. And they'll get you nowhere because your market won't respect it. So foregoing future enrollments. So if we're talking in commercial terms, your faculty and staff will be disgruntled. So your key stakeholder and your employees will be ready to set up a guillotine somewhere. And I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, you're doing yourself a disservice as a learning organization. I mean, this is the you know, a church of science, reason and logic. If you can't comprehend what this moment means for higher education, I think you're you're being dishonest, maybe deliberately so. There's an agenda there that requires a bit of unpacking and some therapy. But let's be real. This is something that is not going anywhere. Let's not. The stigma around online teaching and learning, I think, you know, it's come and gone. If you've still got pockets of your institutions that are holding on to that stigma, well, I think that's an even more dangerous ideology than ever before. Uh, I think we now need to start talking about the word quality a lot more and what high quality online looks like. And it's not a recipe card. It's, it's not something that we can just follow these five steps and say, this is what's going to work. It's probably something that's unique to your institution and your organization. And that also probably means if we were to go back to our marketing sort of set up and paradigm at the start of this talk, probably something that sets you apart in the market anyway. So it could make good commercial sense to follow that intuition and say, wait, what is it that we're known for and why are we known for it? And how can we make it part of a unique teaching and learning approach? 
How can we communicate that to our students and our market? How can we use it to inspire and make our educators excited about this challenge? But also to go back to some very old, you know, old school thinking of how does it make people want to work for us as an organization? Because there is a degree of sameness at the moment. And I think that's a bit despairing. Um, so the thing I'm hearing most is from both educators and students is I didn't sign up for this. You know, this is the sort of emblematic quote of 2020. And I think once we get beyond that despair and frustration, we'll move into this sense of, you know, and this is beyond a new normal type mindset, but this is something where we will see exciting new mergers. We will see exciting new ways of teaching and learning manifest and maybe even trademark pedagogy. So you might have an institution that might follow a certain approach. There might be a sense that we move away from our consideration of what is considered good and great is something that only Ivy League institutions can do because at the moment, it's the small, agile, upstart, fresh contemporary universities, community colleges, TAFEs, uh, tech schools that are doing the interesting things that matter for students, which is helping them get a job in a difficult economy, helping them learn from home in a way that's compassionate, considerate, and has empathy, but also ultimately at the end of the day, inspires them and, and gives them a new way of thinking about the world. So look, that's, that's I suppose if I, it's, it's a sort of, again, it's a cop-out crystal ball exercise, but I suppose it's my own take on where we are at the moment. Tom, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for sharing your views so generously today. I appreciate it. Thanks, Tony and Phil, for the wonderful questions for having me as well.